0: My name is Matthew, I have the opportunity to be a pastor here, and so today we are going to continue our journey through the life of Jesus. We started with his birth, uh, the reality that God became a man, God comes to earth in the form of a baby, in the form of a baby, submits to human flesh, he's all God, he's all man, and he walks the earth. He experiences some of the things that we experience he uh, grew up, he needed help, uh, he aged, he grew in wisdom, he was baptized, signifying his, uh, the reality that he's going to follow the Lord. He's going to submit to the plan that he and his father had established, and he uh, follows Jesus in all these things. Last week, you guys talked about him having compassion, and how compassion provides a depth of attention, care, and solution unlike anything the world has to offer. And its it seems crazy to be in a church and just present this, but Jesus is the answer to the issues that you're having. And so in, in respect to compassion, Jesus is the solution. He offers so much more than anything the world has to offer. And today, today, we get to dive into anger. So Jesus got angry. And so it's one of those things when we produce the message uh, layout for the summer. You're like, oh, Lord, I don't want the one on anger. Please don't give me the one on anger. And here I am. So happy day. Uh, the last three weeks have been very convicting, uh, challenging to me. I can't say that I have achieved anything as far as anger goes. Um, it rears its ugly head in my life regularly. And so it's been particularly convicting but encouraging to see, again, that Jesus Christ comes to earth and, you know, he kind of walks a mile in our shoes, kind of faces different situations and turmoils, and, uh, and he succeeds. Like perfectly trusting the Father, he succeeds in areas that, that I regularly do not succeed in. And so it's encouraging that God endured that so I can lean into him as I'm struggling with. So I guess the question we ask today is what is your anger rooted in? Or are you getting angry about the right things? Like what what is it about for you uh, when when it comes to your anger? And I had the opportunity to go to a pastor's conference some years ago and listen to one of my favorite authors speak on parenting. And at one point he gives this illustration of a dad who had come home from work and found his favorite tool obliterated in the backyard. And so with, with rage, I guess you could call it, he storms in the house, asks for the story, and bolts upstairs, whips open the bedroom door, red-faced and again irate. He says, what were you doing in the garage? What were you doing with the tool? Why were you doing it? You know. And then the author pauses or the speaker pauses. And he's like, do you guys think in that moment that his son was like, man, I want to be like that guy. What is the reason for the hope that he has? And I'm like, am I the only one crying in this row? <laughs> nope, all 50 of us are. It, it was devastating. <laughs> you know, so when I talk about anger today, I'm not just talking about punching holes in the wall or necessarily screaming. Those things are issues. I'm sure they're represented here today. But there's, there's more subtle ways to be angry. You can be bitter. You can hold a grudge for years. Years and years and years, you can be resentful against a situation where most likely a person, a part of the situation, that you can just cling to and that you can walk with for years and years and years, always withholding a little bit of something of yourself from those people, from that person. I will never let that person in. And so whether it be in your own home, with your own children, with your tools, with your garage, right? Right? Or whether it be something more, like anger fleshes itself out in a million different ways amongst many of us, right? And being as we're religious people, let's face it, some of us are good at hiding. Some of us are really good at hiding. And so that story blew my mind and just really started to open my eyes up to some things in my life that I needed to work on. But it kind of goes back to the question of what, what is our anger rooted in? Are we even being angry about the right things? Why do we have the ability to get angry? In fact, sometimes maybe you've been like so frustrated with your own anger or their anger that you're like, I'm going to do a Google search. What does the Bible say about anger? And perhaps you've got Ephesians 4.17 that says, don't let the sun go down on your wrath. Yeah, that's a good one. The context there is he's talking about new life in Christ. And a believer has a hope that is outside this world. So that we can really address and engage those things. But sometimes when you look for those topics, like a Bible verse on anger, you really get a shortened, like, punch of, like, stop it. Stop it. And I'm betting that they never brought up these verses that we're going to talk about Jesus with. Right? If you had a view that Jesus walked around in a white robe and a purple sash with perfect brown hair and all this stuff, like, I hope you're getting the picture that that's not the correct view of Jesus. He could sit in one of our chairs and blend in fairly well, except when he was walking on water and doing miracles, okay? And that would be like, oh, who is this guy? And that's what these people are kind of wrestling with, like, who who is this guy? How can he do all that stuff? Like, what is he doing? But even in his anger, he it seems like he does it differently. So today we're going to cover three situations in which Jesus gets angry. I think he expresses frustration in more than these three but I think this really gives us a picture of how Jesus Christ displays anger as a man, all right? So if you have a Bible, turn with me to the book of Mark and we're gonna start in Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10 and we're gonna go to verses 13 through 15. So Mark ten thirteen says this, and they were bringing children to him that he might touch them and the disciples rebuked them But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant. And he said to them, let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for so belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And so you get this picture of Jesus doing ministry out and about. And naturally at this point in his ministry, people are starting to hear about this Jesus, this prophet. or He claims to be the son of God. What? Like, let's go see him, okay? So, Jesus is doing ministry, and off on the side, the disciples are like, whoa, settle down. This isn't Sunday school. Like, settle down. Stop it. He's too important for them. And Jesus is like, what? What? What's going on over there? Right? And you see this concept of indignancy. So, when you look at the original word that indignant comes from here, it means he was offended. He was irate or he was grieved. And so it's an interesting picture when you look at this story because even in our own lives, it's important to track where grief is at in your life. As a counselor here for a few years, it's interesting to track how grief and anger often, they're buddies. If you don't grieve the change in your family situation, it's often going to come out of you in anger. If you don't grieve the loss of your job or the loss of your health, it might come out of you in anger. It's, the two are often so tightly matched. They're so tightly stuck together that it's important to see those things. And in this story, you see this word indignated uh, pairing them together. Why are you preventing people to come and worship? Why are you preventing people to come and worship? In fact, the people that you're preventing, this is what the kingdom of God looks like. And perhaps you see Jesus maybe sitting near a tree or standing near a tree talking to people. And certainly you have moms bringing their babies down. Like, I I just want this teacher to do something for this kid. Pray for the kid, lay hands on the kid. And perhaps you see some toddlers like, that's Jesus? Are you kidding me? That's Jesus? And it's a picture of what the kingdom, the people of the kingdom of God look like. They want Jesus, and you have these religious guys, these disciples, saying like, "Settle down, settle down." And yet, there's are people that want to worship. They want to touch Jesus, and Jesus welcomes them, and Jesus uses them as that picture. Kingdom of God people want to be with Jesus, and Jesus gets angry and grieved when people stopped them from their attempt to be at Jesus or get to Jesus. Let's go to Mark chapter three and let's check out another story where Jesus is angered by religious people. Mark chapter three, we're gonna start in verse one. Again, he entered the synagogue And a man was there with a withered hand, and they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. Like, this is a picture of bitterness and how resentment looks. Let's keep an eye on him. How is he going to get us again, right? And what's crazy to me is these religious people, and this is my concern for us as a church, right? You're in this room, and you might be visiting, like, what have I gotten myself into, right? But you're religious, Okay, And here's a scenario that reveals the religious people's heart. Jesus comes in to the temple, to the synagogue, to the place of worship. And they're like, keep an eye on him. Keep an eye on him. What is he going to do now? Right, these people are very bitter. They're very jealous at the attention Jesus is getting and what he's doing. Like he's breaking the rules. Like we're supposed to be rule followers here. We've got all these laws like what is Jesus Christ doing? How can he do that? We need to keep an eye on him. We need to make sure he doesn't do anything that he might do. Okay? But it's, it's with a person. Right? There's a person. There's a man with a withered hand, whether it be from birth or whether it be from some injury. Right? There's, there's people involved in the situation. Okay? So let's go to verse 3. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come over here, come here. And he said to him, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or kill? But they were silent. In Matthew's account of this story, in the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew also writes about this. Jesus gives an example to the religious people. He says, hey, guys, if it was the Sabbath and one of your sheep fell into a pit, like, wouldn't you dig it out? Like, wouldn't you go get it? I mean, your livelihood is at stake. Like, wouldn't you immediately stop what you were doing, knowing that the law, which told you to rest on the Sabbath, also gave you a way to repent? Wouldn't you go and rescue the sheep from the pit? And Jesus knew the heart of the religious people that were present. And I think he knew exactly what they would do. And then he ends that spot in Matthew by saying, here's a man. How much more important is a man than a sheep? I'm going to rescue. More than that, they should have known that Jesus Christ was Lord of the Sabbath. Right? The Lord of the Sabbath and a man with a withered hand. And who stands between them? The religious people. The religious people stand between the Lord of the Sabbath and a man whose body is broken. And Jesus Christ is angry. Come here. Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger. Again, he was grieved at their hardness of heart. And he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. And he did. And the Pharisees immediately went and said, How are we going to kill this guy? We need to get rid of this guy, right? Here the guy is healed. His hand, like, well, why are we meeting? Why do we want to destroy him? Oh, he healed a man. Guy couldn't use his hand for years, maybe his whole life. Let's take this guy out. The religious people. Jesus' anger burned against them. And I think what we need to realize, too, whether it be Monday morning, Sunday afternoon, Monday morning, Tuesday... Friday, every situation in our life reveals a bit of our heart. What is our heart anchored in? Is it treasuring who God is or is it treasuring myself and my own kingdom? Okay, I covered a lot of ground there, right? Is it his kingdom or my kingdom? And the situation that will happen to you on the way home from church, because you know it's when it's going to hit. I'm already dreading it, okay? I know. I know the cannon is aimed at my head. And it's going to go off this afternoon. And where's my heart going to be? Is it going to be on my kingdom or his kingdom? Okay, and then Monday's coming, right? Monday, Monday, right? Oh, boy. I just want to go ride my bike. I don't want to think about it, okay? But it reveals who I am, the trials and tribulations that I walk through. Is it going to build endurance in me or am I going to lose my mind? And the simple act of Jesus Christ walking into the synagogue, calling up this wounded man, reveals the heart of the religious people. They, they didn't know Jesus. They didn't follow Jesus. Sure, they were passionate about the Sabbath day. The Sabbath day was created in the very beginning. On the seventh day, God rested, right, That says in the Ten Commandments, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. But they had missed the fact that the Lord of the Sabbath was present. The Creator of the universe had sent someone to earth as promised to bridge the gap between the holiness of God and the brokenness of man. The Creator of the Sabbath had sent someone, the Lord of the Sabbath. And these guys are worried about the Sabbath, or they're cloaked, they think they're worried about the Sabbath. But I think Jesus is more worried about the worship. They're missing the point. They're missing an opportunity to bring praise and honor to Jesus. And this situation and the situations of your lives reveal where your heart is at. And it's important to note that in the scriptures, no place is hardness of heart awesome. There is no place in the scriptures Where hardness of heart is like, I'm good, this is great. It echoes like the words of Ephesians 2, but you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Like this reality, a hardness of heart, like if your heart is not a heart of flesh. In Jeremiah, we're going places here now, got to be careful with this, right? But in Jeremiah, there's this new covenant talked about where he changes a heart of stone to a heart of flesh. No place is a hard heart ever awesome. It's not a good spot to be in. And these religious people, these church people, are the one who Jesus grieves and is angered about. They were fighting for the Sabbath, a good thing, rather than the healing of an image bearer of God. And they chose man-made rules over holiness. And that's an interesting point for some of us church people to make. Like, have your rules exceeded God? Know what that means? Have you made rules, more rules, just to make God more special? He doesn't need your help. To honor the Sabbath, perhaps initially it was respectful. Like, well, let's, to make sure we don't work, let's, let's just make sure we don't even do this. Well, th- you know what? And then we won't even do that. Like, let's not even do that and that and that. And they, they, were, they were out here with all their rules. And no place, in the Old Covenant, does it say that a man could not be healed on the Sabbath day? But in their rules that they had added and were defending, they said that the Lord of the Sabbath couldn't heal on the Sabbath. And they were angry. But Jesus was angry with them. Let's go to Matthew chapter 21 for our final text, verses 12 and 13. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. So you get this picture of the Jews, God's chosen people, the descendants of Abraham of Genesis 12. They're the Jews. They're given the commandments of God. They're given the promises of God first. And they are told that through their nation, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And they're not blessing all the nations. In fact, they're holding some of the nations back. Well, if you have a Bible that has pictures in the back, some of them have maps. My Bible doesn't have those. Or if you have Google, there's also a few pictures there. Um, There's a picture of the temple. When you look at Herod's temple, there's a few different rooms as part of that whole temple. But the outer court area is called the court of the Gentiles. And this is where the opportunity was for all the people from all the nations to come. Well, God had chose the Israelites and worked through the Israelites in the older covenant. There was still a calling to all the nations to come, be set apart, be holy. And in this temple, there's this picture of this outer court, which was open to all the nations. Come, Gentiles. Come and worship Yahweh. Come and pray. Come and celebrate who God is. The Lord demands your worship. The Lord deserves your worship. Come and worship him. So the covenant people who had the temple had this court that was open to all the other people. All the us were Gentiles. Okay? We get the chance to go into this place and worship God in that season. But the Jews had filled it up. They had made a mall of the place. They had created booths where they could sell sheep and birds and exchange money. You know, you might have some Gentile coming from Egypt, or you have a Gentile coming from another area of the peninsula. And they would need to have their money exchanged, both for perhaps the purchase of an animal or for perhaps the, the tithe. And so they were able to come in here, and rather than just bringing their own pigeon, which seems nice for a sacrifice, the Jews were like, oh, we got pigeons. And we'll just store them in the temple, in the house of God, and you can just come and buy them. And it seems like, you know, that's worthy of a convenience tax, right? I mean, I'll pad my pockets just a little bit. It's kind of like a hot dog at a baseball game where you're like, I think I could get 12 real beef hot dogs for this price and maybe a couple buns, right? But they just charge you the 8 bucks anyway. Okay? And so they're they're adding to this too. They're they're stealing from the people. And more than just stealing the gentiles' money, they're stealing the opportunity for the gentiles to come and worship the one true God. The place dedicated, committed to the gentiles is filled up with money changers, and it's filled up with the sales of animals, even for the sacrifice, right? You have a good thing that's been perverted just a little bit. Like, we're helping people. We're helping people worship. We're helping people. But in so doing, they reject worship. They withhold worship from the Gentiles that have come from all around to worship. And Jesus isn't a fan. Now Jesus has done this twice. John chapter 2 tells the story of Jesus coming into the temple, finding it full of animals and full of money changers, and he makes cords, he fashions cords, and he clears out all the animals. He clears out all the tables, he clears out all the people. And here we come again, fairly close to Holy Week, and he's just like, what are you guys doing? My Father's house will be a house of prayer. It will be a house of worship. And you you have made it a den of robbers. You are sure to get your extra quarter. You are sure to overprice that pigeon. Gross birds. This is about worship. This is my father's house. And you see Jesus Christ cleans it out of there. Let's just read that again. He drove out all who sold and bought in the temple and he overturns the table of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. Like I've heard it said like, well, if Jesus could flip over tables, I can go in and do this. And usually like 99.99999% of that time, you ain't doing it for the same reason. Jesus has a zeal and a passion for his father, for his holiness, for that thing, the temple that represents him here on the earth. And Jesus is doing this in an interesting time because the temple worship is introduced in Exodus. And then you come to the Gospels and there's about to be a transition. Jesus is fulfilling and starting a new covenant with his people, the church. And so this temple isn't going to last much longer. In fact, at the cross, the veil is torn in two and we have the opportunity to walk into the Holy of Holies. In fact, 1 Peter talks about us now being the temple, with Christ as the cornerstone. And so the Holy Spirit moves then inside of us. And so at this interesting point, again, you see Jesus Christ dealing with religious people. Religious people who have blown up man-made rules. So what has Jesus gotten upset about or grieved over in these last few stories? Jesus is grieved when children and the Gentiles are hindered or rejected from worship. Jesus gets upset when people withhold worship from his father. That's what drives, that's when Jesus Christ displays the anger and the grief towards the people. Secondly, he gets angry when people prioritize man-made rules over God's rules. This is something worth really checking out in your own heart. Certainly, you know, if you have a street and you have a child, you obviously don't want them to run out onto the street. So you might say, hey, we don't want you to run out into the street so I don't even want you to cross the sidewalk, right? That gains you an extra eight feet. All right? So you set a barrier back a little bit. But the issue isn't the sidewalk. The issue is the street, right? And these people are fighting tooth and nail for the sidewalk. You can't cross the sidewalk. You can't cross the sidewalk. Where have you done that in your own life? And it might be something good for you, but where have you preached it over somebody else? That's problematic. And Jesus is angered by those who are so passionately upholding the man-made rules and failing to follow the law of God. And then Jesus gets angry when the holiness of God is defiled. That is worth getting angry about. The holiness of God, his temple, where his presence was, caused him to clear it out, caused him to flip the tables. That's what caused him to flip the tables. He wanted his house to be a house for the nations, a house for prayer, and a house for worship. And Jesus cleans out that part. And it's interesting to note in Jesus Christ's life, nowhere, nowhere does Jesus Christ lash out on non-believers. None. Non-believers, they're not under the church. He continuously pokes and prods the religious people who claim to know the Father, who know God fact, some of the Jews had memorized the first five books of the Bible by the time they were nine. And then Jesus Christ is here fulfilling the law, respecting the temple, showing what they could do in the temple. And they're like, nope, you're wrong. No, nope, you can't do that. No place does Jesus Christ go after the world. And secondly, no place does Jesus Christ go after Rome. And when Jesus Christ was being mistreated and on trial, he, like a lamb before his shears is dumb, he did not open his mouth. The people of God, the covenant people of God, the Jews, had gotten things out of whack. And Jesus Christ was grieved with his church. These situations revealed their hardness of heart. Perhaps that they weren't even part of the church. They were clinging on to religious things, and they weren't clinging to Christ. The Pharisees weren't with the children saying, let me touch him, let me touch him. They were like, should he be touched? Isn't that dirty? Those are the things I see when I look at Jesus Christ getting angry or grieved in these situations. So what is your anger anchored in? Are you getting angry about the right things? The point I want you to walk away with is there is a righteous anger. And righteous anger is anchored in God's holiness and his love for people. God's name should not be defamed, especially among those of us who claim God. When you don't believe there's a God, you just don't care. You have no parameters to set of whether or not you should honor him or not honor him, right? But you claim Christ. Are we getting angry about us who claim to know him, who claim to love him? But but don't act like it. But walk all over his rules. And not just thinking about me looking out onto you or anyone else for that matter. Am I upset with myself? And his love for people. Righteous anger is anchored in God's holiness and his love for people. God loves his creation, God loves his image bearers. God wants worship for them. That's why it's loving for me to tell them about Jesus, to tell them that Christ made a way for us to be with our Creator. Is anything like that driving our anger? When we look at our anger, does it reflect the care for the holiness of who God is? When we look at our anger, does it show concern for where other people are at with God? I read a couple blog articles over the last couple years about how angry Christians are. They're so angry and vile. Does your anger show that God is absolutely sovereign over every situation that has ever happened and ever will happen? Would the person that you were last angry with say, this person believes in an eternal being that is over everything? Would the person that you were last angry with come to you and say, why are you so hopeful? Why are you so hopeful? Why are you so optimistic? Would someone say your anger shows a love for God or a love for yourself? I think I've shared this story with you before, but oftentimes this guy's anger loves me. I love some quiet time. I love my time watching YouTube. I don't want to get interrupted because, gosh, it's important, really important. I heard they have a pause button. What? I love my comfort. I like my comfort in my home. I like my comfort in my yard. I like my comfort down my street. I like my comfort in my town. I like my comfort in my country. I like, I like me. I like me a lot. And so oftentimes when I get angry, it's because me is affected. And it has nothing to do with the holiness of God. Absolutely nothing to do with the holiness of God and my reaction, whether it be my words or my attitudes. You know, anger is also a three-day silent treatment. My actions don't match up with anything like I have the hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ, which saved me from all my sin. I need a savior. Does your anger show a love for God or a love for yourself? I mean, this kind of anger really strips away a lot of things we can be angry about, that we are angry about. How do we apply this? Because trials are going to come. Trials are a part of our life. In fact, those trials that happened to the religious people, they revealed their hearts. Okay, so trials and situations will reveal your hearts. And this is my plea for the church. Even because of Jesus Christ, we have the opportunity to know the Creator, we have the opportunity to know God. You can know God. You can grow in trust with God. You can speak to God. You can be in relationship with who he is because of Jesus Christ. Like, do you know God? Like, what is the extent of his sovereignty? Can God keep an eye on your kid when they never show up at curfew? Do we do that anymore? Can God keep an eye on them, right? Right? Certainly there are parenting issues, like the story before, where there's some angst. And again, we can work through it too. But like, does the character and nature of God drive your discipline at home? And I don't want to just talk about your kids. Like, let's talk about your spouse. Does the character and nature of God permeate your communication with your wife or your husband? Sometimes it's fun to talk about those people and this situation but it's tougher to bring it under our roof the character and nature of God ought to are we getting angry about the right things know who God is there's a few texts that I want to show you guys if you're like where do I start out with knowing who God is Um, you can go to Daniel chapter 4 verses 34 and 35 a great place to start Read it. I can't go there. We'll be there another three hours. Job 39. Job and his buddies, they whine and complain about all the things for a bajillion chapters. And then God shows up. He's like, hey, did you plant that mountain? Were you there at the beginning? Who who do you think you are, right? God is very big. He's very awesome. And don't just take my word for it. Go to these texts. Psalm 8 says, how majestic is the Lord. Learn about who God is to fight your anger. second suggestion would, would be to go to James chapter 1 and study this and put it into practice. James 1 verses 19 and 20 says this. Know this, my beloved brothers. Let each every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Okay, this is a very practical text. Like you bring in all this theology, right? It isn't just like, stop it, stop it, stop it. It's like, there are reasons for you to be able to stop. There are purposes, right? Luke chapter six says, out of your heart, your mouth speaks. So when you're building up with frustration or you harbor bitterness for 10 or 15 or 20 years or more, like it comes from your heart, Not even from that other person necessarily. Okay, it's coming out of you. Be quick to listen. God is sovereign. God is on his throne. Nothing your brother says to you will knock him off his throne. Nothing your spouse says to you will knock him off his throne. Nothing your ex says to you will knock God off his throne. Nothing your mother-in-law says to you will knock God off his throne. Nothing the doctor says to you will knock God off his throne. God is merciful, God is gracious, God is kind. If there is anything consistent in this world, it is only him. And nothing will separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Nothing they say, nothing they do, no matter what they do with the kids, no matter what they do at the workplace, will knock God off his throne. Listen. Listen to him. Listen to the scenario. Take the time to hear perhaps a different perspective. You might still disagree with it, but you can listen because God is who he says he is. Okay, slow to speak. Should you speak at all, shut your mouth. See what God does. God doesn't need you to interject into a situation that he has full control of in the first place. Be slow to speak. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Your anger over the scratch in your car, your anger over your favorite east wing hammer being laid out in the backyard in the rain, it doesn't produce the righteousness of God. And these are my stories. Like, what is your story? Like, you look back over seven days. You're angry, right? Right? I need a look. Right? Anybody angry this last week or just me? Okay, like your anger, did it produce the righteousness of God? You insert your story. And you don't have to answer that. The anger of man doesn't produce the righteousness of God. Your bitterness, you can do it another five years. You can hold it against that person. mm, You, you. It won't produce righteousness. It's not producing in you some God-glorifying aspect. It might even be driving you further away from God. What does it look like to forgive? What does it look like to lead in? And I know there's stories behind some of that. It isn't just a magical one-second thing. It's, it might be another journey, right? But here's a second suggestion. Like, how do I do this? Lean into who God is. Practice, perhaps, James 1, 19 through 20. And even as we go into the time of communion here, like we realize when we think about anger that in some way I would say we all struggle with anger. But, I, but I'm grateful to us as a church today that we have the example of Jesus Christ. That Jesus Christ, when faced with anger, displayed a right anger. To be angry about the things that God is angry about. Which reveals to this guy, I'm rarely angry about the things that God is angry about. I need a savior. And Jesus Christ is that savior. So perhaps you're, you're wrestling with anger. Perhaps you do the p- poles and the walls thing. Or you do the yelling and screaming. Or perhaps you do the subtle... You know, not talking for a few days, or you've been bitter for years and years and years, like, give it to Jesus. Jesus' blood was shed and his body broken, though not broken, for our sin, that you could be free. Christ died for the sin of anger. In Galatians 5, it talks about the fruit of the Spirit, and before that, it talks about the fruit of the flesh. And it talks about the fits of anger. They they don't belong in the kingdom of God. Because God addresses it. If God addresses what anger is, why do we continue to walk in it, church? It's something we need to come and we need to bring to the cross. And we can. So as we enter this time of communion, I urge you, church, to spend some time like... Where is your anger at? Are you responding? Are you flaring up in anger for the right things? And where do you need to confess sin as it pertains to anger or anything? Take some time in this song, in this prayer to confess your sin to God, to confess your sin to God, to grieve over areas where you have fought other fights and not addressed sin in your own life. Confess it. Where you have lashed out at your spouse or lashed out at your children. Confess it. And there's a very practical end if we were to read uh, 1 Corinthians 11 where if you need to apologize to someone, you should do that before you do this. So maybe you don't partake this week. Don't. Don't heap judgment on yourself. Go address the person. Perhaps they're in this room. Perhaps they're sitting next to you. But confess your sin to God and confess your sin to one another. He is faithful and just to forgive your your sin and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Let's take communion. God, I'm thankful for your church. God, I'm thankful for the people that represent it, God. And we know that the various scenarios in our lives have revealed our hearts. God, I pray that you would soften our hearts. God, if we have been raging this week, last three years, or longer than that, God, I pray that we would see where our anger doesn't align with yours. God, fill us with an awe of who you are, and God, give us faith to believe you are who you say you are, so we can address our anger. God, but I pray that we would uh, approach communion, God, with hearts that are free, God, that have been, that realize what you've done for us on the cross. God, you're very good. Get all the glory in Jesus' name. Amen.